Welcome to episode 506 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature a grand conversation with New York City-based director, playwright, producer, and founding artistic director of the anthropologist theater group, Melissa Moshito. We talk with Melissa from her place in Manhattan about theater and social issues, the anthropologists, repairing the world, Artemisia's intent, no pants in Tucson, gender oppression, Stonewall, the power of getting lost, and becoming the seeker, among other things. A grand conversation with Melissa Moshito this go-round. We also have an EWSA titled Campana, and we share a reader's write piece titled Anniversaries, written by J.K. from Birmingham, Alabama, published in the January 2023 issue of The Sun magazine. And we have a poem called Reality by Yours Truly. All of this, of course, will be infused, imbued with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to be with you. Let's get to it then. Episode 506 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours. War with my baby from my breast. Now my name in rank cover my chest. Twenty-three hours I flew and wept. Twenty-three hours I never slept. Why my face changed my soaking bra. That's how green I was at first Blood blistered feet, black and blue I slid inside my blood-filled boots Seventy-pound cock, plus you on my back Spilled my blood on the road Man, I carried my load Kept you in my view I'd die for you Wow. 
about the women, what do we deserve? I was just like you when the bullets flew. I had your back, you had mine too. Brothers in arms, your sisters covered you. Don't that make us your brother too? Campana. The happiness of your time is predicated on sunlight and Brussels sprouts, I am told. The sameness of it all is a beauty that transcends ego and id. The Sanskrit tongue guides this pen, and the oddness of it all is projected from within like a view from one's psyche, coloring an abyss of possibility. I remember a time walking the cobbled, charcoal-colored stones of an old road in a village mountain town above the Ionian Sea, surrounded by farmland, chestnut, pine, and olive trees, vineyards of grape, donkeys and vespas and stick-shift automobiles, marble hallways and granite front stoops, tiled balconies, nary a nincompoop. There was no patience for that sort of approach. The coffee was crisp and aromatic, bitter-sweet with some sugar, persimmons, a whole case, purchased by Zia Maria from the wagon of a street vendor, pulled up the winding via up into the town's central piazza, past Café Elio, toward the tabacaria and the palm tree, casting shade over wood benches where men my age now sat and told each other's stories. Sometimes I could smell the salt sea air, like I am there. Oh, <laughs> 
Moshito, is that you? It is. It is I. <laughs> w, is that you? <laughs> it is. Thank you so much for being at Troubadours and Rock on Tours once again. I am so delighted to be invited back, really. Oh, yeah. It's nice for us as well. And uh, I look forward to talking about some of the things that are going on. Well, it's been a few years, but uh, before oh. we get going, let me give the folks some background information about you. Melissa Moshito is an acclaimed theater director, playwright, producer, and arts writer located in New York City. She is the founding artistic director of The Anthropologists, a company that creates evocative movement-infused work about social issues. Troubadours and Rock on Tours is happy to have on the program once again, Melissa Moshito. So, how's it going? How's everything so far in 2023? Um, you know, well, first, thank you for that generous introduction. Um, and, I, you know, this year, I'm, I'm trying to start it off really intentionally. I think 2022 ended in this flurry of events and to do lists and school events for my kids. And it was it was very full. So I'm, I'm working on a slow ramping up in 23 so far so good <laughs> yeah we're we're about two weeks in as we speak and uh yeah let's keep it going that's a great philosophy i know you have um a husband and uh, two children and i guess you live right in new york city right i do i am in upper manhattan beautiful beautiful up so near near the parks and it's very residential and neighborhoody up here and it's a beautiful place to live it is i was just there with my family uh, last saturday and my son was oh. auditioning for the boston ballet and we were hanging out in central park he was at lincoln center and okay. it's just gorgeous it is it's an inspiring city it truly is and uh i know you're inspired a lot by what what goes on in your own community but also in the larger world to a large extent that's what you do on stage with the anthropologist right most of the work that you folks create 
is driven, inspired, focuses on social issues. This is true. Our plays are all uh, research-based and created from a foundation of source material that kind of runs the gamut, ranges from found text to, you know, historical documentations, uh, uh, trial transcripts or even recipes from a cookbook. Uh, it depends on what we are focused on and what story we're trying to tell. But uh, a lot of the times we're, we're most interested in like what stories have fallen through the cracks, what voices have been, or whose voices have been relegated to the footnotes and you know what is the story there. Exactly. And I think that's important. I, I, you know, I commend you for doing that. Do, do you find um, sometimes audiences, when you're putting on shows that deal with uh, compelling, difficult issues, do you find audiences have, have um, uh, I don't know, sort of an, ad, an adverse reaction to, to being um, sort of challenged to that extent? Or do they love it? You know, if I'm being honest, it's it, it can be both. It can be both. I've certainly had experiences where there's just a really strong reaction from an audience member. Sometimes it's more along the lines of not maybe not being able to process in the moment or articulate their response. And sometimes there have been um, negative responses. I think more so from this idea of like a worldview being challenged or, or being challenged to be uncomfortable um, with an idea, uh, with the style of storytelling. We're not always uh, making work that is easily digestible or fits into a commercial container, right? Mm -hmm. And by the same token, there are absolutely many audience members who are really excited and energized at the end of our work. Uh, at every show, we're able to connect with somebody who, whether it's just through how they squeeze your hand when they meet you or the look in their eyes, or, or if they do, um, if they are able to, to come speak to us personally, we're finding people who see themselves on stage, sometimes for the first time, or they're just really moved by the kind of content, the kind of stories that we're telling and how we're telling the stories. Uh, and I've had to become more comfortable, although it's not always easy. I have to become more comfortable when I do experience um, those really big emotions from an audience member. When someone doesn't care for our work. And I have to remind myself that I'm not making work, that we are not, as a company, making work for everybody. We're not going to be everybody's cup of tea. And if we elicit a strong reaction in an audience member, that's that's fantastic. When you um, when you started uh, studying theater in, uh, in college, you have your BA in theater. Uh, is this, at that point, where you wanted to go with it? Or did you have a different vision? Did, was this always sort of what you wanted to do with theater? Is this what you saw as a, as a powerful use of theater, touching on social I, issues, connecting with people? Not initially. And, you know, I began in theater, I think, as so many of us, as a performer. 
um, I think I might have shared this on um, the first time we spoke that I grew up as a competitive figure skater. And so I always had this love of performing and a certain comfort level that goes with that. Uh, and, you know, at the time when I, I, I got my uh, undergraduate degree at from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. And at the time, it was a pretty traditionally run theater program. So I definitely went into college with like the the Broadway lens uh, with a with just more experience in the commercial realm of theater. I, I grew up near Boston, so I was seeing shows, Broadway shows that were on tour. Um, I was fortunate that every year for my birthday, my grandparents would take me to see a show. That was just a beautiful tradition. So I... I, I came up with a, a more uh, traditional view on theater. And then, of course, there were a few different sort of milestones I hit or experiences that I had while I was in college that really changed everything, like the kaleidoscope, just reorganizing all of the elements into a new picture. Um, the two that I really think are, are the most formative for me were while I was at UMass Amherst, I had the good fortune to intern and then work at a theater company called New World Theater that is sadly no longer. Uh, and it was in residence at UMass Amherst. It was not part of the theater department. Uh, and the founder, Roberta Uno, was just an incredible visionary incredible leader and was bringing all kinds of theater artists and theater makers to Amherst, to UMass Amherst, to be in residence, to be performing. Uh, and these were a majority of these performers, if not all of them, were artists of color. Uh, and it really opened up my eyes to so many new stories, so many new types of storytelling. While, while I was there, um, this was, you know, the, the late 90s and hip hop theater was really big at that time. Um, and so there were a lot of hip hop artists that I was coming into contact with. Um, and they just had an incredible sense of how complex artistry could be and how full our stages could be of different stories. Right. And, and one program in particular called Project 2050 was a youth program for high school students and maybe even middle school students. And the idea was that in, in 2050, sociologists had predicted that minorities would no longer be the minority. So what mm -hmm. is that world going to look like? And the format that they used was really influential to me. Uh, it, it was a week long or a 10 day camp that the kids went to and it was a combination of master classes with artists of all kinds all disciplines and they would have guest lecturers come in for these knowledge for power sessions so the the students who were involved and and me as like a counselor there we were speaking with experts on immigration and immigration policy in the u.s and then translating that into performance. So that was really my first contact with 
making work about something that's happening right now and infusing it with scholarship towards the goal of inspiring or provoking action provoking conversation um and that was incredible to me and i often find myself just like trying to repeat that kind of or replicate that model because i found it so powerful yeah I and can, the other i can tell why i if you know i guess initially though you must that must be who you are you know these things are are uh are part of of what you believe are important things. What I mean by that is social justice, right? And 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 art and and communicating and connecting with the community. Well, I I think I I have to draw a lot of that back to my um, my upbringing as a as a young Jewish person in the world, and I take to heart very much the concept of tikkun olam, repairing the world, leaving it a little bit better then we found it. Uh, that is very meaningful to me and is something that I think about a lot, especially even more so now as a parent. Uh, and so I, I think that that is where that, that seed was planted. And that's awesome. That's excellent. And I understand where you're coming from in that regard. Uh, uh, now, when you when we look at some of your bigger successes, you've had several uh, at least. I the one that comes to mind is Artemisia's intent, mm. and uh, you know what? I mean, we can talk a little bit about her if you like. Again, she was a painter, a Baroque painter from mm -hmm. back in the 17th century, um, mm -hmm. and she was you know a trailblazer to say the least. Um, you have a, the, your first published script of that uh, yeah. play coming out. So congratulations. Thank uh, you. Yeah. What, what compelled you to focus on this painter from the 17th century? Initially that, that project was, um, came together partly out of logistical concerns. And I'll explain that. Uh, and also, of course, the the story, the very gripping story of Artemisia, paired with the idea that I knew nothing about her, this painter. And, uh, you know, I had taken the big art history lecture in college. I had the good fortune to um, study abroad in Europe. And, and that was one of my other formative times was um, living in Spain and coming into contact with European theater companies. Uh, but also I was going to museums. And when I heard Artemisia Dentaleski's name, I thought, who, who, who is that? And this is an experience that I have had mirrored back to me so many times by people who come to see the show or or hear about the show they're like i didn't know about artemisia i think now in 2022 2023 um she's a lot more visible her work has become a lot more visible but certainly when we were starting to create it in 2017 when we we first got the idea and then 2018 when we premiered it uh she was very much uh a new entity for people. And yet her story is 
so familiar, so familiar to us. In terms of the the logistics, um, at the time, my co-collaborator, Mariah Frieda, uh, performer in the company and also our artistic associate, I've been working with her since 2012. And the anthropologist. Yes, yes, with the anthropologist. Um, you know, she had one young child at home. Uh, I had two young children at home. And the sheer logistics of scheduling rehearsal time, scheduling babysitters so that we could go into the rehearsal studio, uh, it, it's, it's like mount, moving mountains sometimes. And we had this thought, like, okay, we're very ensemble driven, our company. Uh, and I love a large ensemble, although it's not always feasible in terms of, you know, the bottom line, budget, et cetera. Mm. Uh, and this time we said, you know what? We're, we're just gonna make a rehearsal schedule around our availability. It's going to be a solo show. It's going to be for Mariah. So that, that, that's where the thinking started around the same time that I had heard about Artemisia, an exhibit that was up in Rome, um, and a little bit about her story being, having been a young female artist, a young painter, whose father had hired a tutor uh, to teach her perspective and landscape. Uh, and the tutor assaulted her, uh, sexually assaulted her. And we only know this because uh, she was, her father was wealthy enough and well-known enough that he took this person, this tutor, to court, to trial, because of course it was a property trial. Artemisia was considered property and now she was damaged. Uh, and remarkably, the transcripts from that trial, which happened in 1612, uh, they, survived and have since been translated into English. And that was one of the key, uh, you know, primary source documents that we used to create this solo performance about Artemisia. And I do want to say it is about so much more. It's about her career as a painter, uh, her creative expression, her opportunities and where she was limited as an artist. And it's about women's representation in art, both on the canvas and behind it. Um, I presume, I, tell, I presume there's a male dominated uh, scene for sure back then. And, and is that part of it? Yeah. They were, they did not take her seriously. And uh, because she was a woman. Certainly, you know, her letters are fascinating. There are letters that were also translated into English between her and patrons. Uh, and there are several letters where she has to really um, defend her pricing and insist on getting paid as much as men, um, which was, uh, I don't know that it was like surprising to read that. I think more we, we encountered it with dismay, like, oh my gosh, this has been happening for 400 years or more. Um, and you, she was fortunate in that her father was a painter and that is how she got to become a painter because she could take lessons from him. Otherwise she would not have had access to 
painting lessons or a studio. Uh, and she did become quite successful. Part of her story is that after the trial, she ended up leaving um, Rome for Florence, which at that time, it was not a unified Italy. So it was a very big move. She really was starting over all over again. And she had to become a really shrewd, confident businesswoman. And she did become quite successful in her time, um, considering the, the landscape, which did not have many women artists in it. Uh, and unfortunately, over time, a lot of her paintings were either not put on display or have been kept inside private collections. And only recently have they started to be purchased by uh, major museums um, or revealed and restored. The wild thing is that we took this play on tour again this past fall, um, which was very exciting. One of the places we brought it to was Hartford, Connecticut, because the museum there, the Wadsworth Athenaeum, has one of her paintings that we use in, in the play. Um, but while we were remounting the, the play and touring it, several more paintings by Artemisia were uh, either authenticated or purchased by a museum or are being restored. So ironically in the play at the very end um we talk about the number of paintings in that she created during her in her career and now that number is outdated because since um since it went to publication and since we we started performing the show so many more paintings have been added to her canon that's pretty neat and again as we mentioned uh the script has now been published right yes Yes. And if uh, someone, you and your your uh, friends and colleagues in the Anthropologist uh, Theater Company did the research and, and crafted mm -hmm. this uh, production, uh, if folks wanted to pick up a copy, could where could they find it? Well, they can go to our website, theanthropologists.org, and there is a helpful little button you can click on right there on our website. Right now, it is only available online through Amazon. And hopefully we will find other ways to get get the play out there. And yes, you know, one other thing that I wanted to share about this play is that it was the first time, and to date the only time, that we created a solo play as an ensemble. So while there is one person performing the show, Mariah, who's incredible. Uh, it was a team, a, a, a group of five women artists who created the play together. Uh, and it just brought such a, a richness and a specificity to the work. Um, so that team included myself and Mariah, as well as another performer, Brianna Kalich, and our visual designer, Irina Krieva, and our dramaturg, Lindy Rosario. Uh, and, and this is a model of creation that we, since the beginning of The Anthropologist in 2008, we have leaned into this idea of everybody in the room, all of the artists in the room engaging with the source material, investigating the research together and interpreting the source material through uh, 
great physicality and movement and it makes for really i think really dynamic performance although i have been known to get too attached to the research and there's definitely always a process in the the scripting process where i'm compiling what we've created in the rehearsal room and the research and and then offering it up to the team and and we have to cut certain things out and let go like not everyone wants to know exactly how that pigment was made we don't need that for the storytelling so i i learn i learn anew with every project so it's uh, never fictionalized maybe some poetic license or do you fictionalize uh, some not just with this production artemisia's mm-hmm. intent but with others as well is it uh, ever fiction yes absolutely um it is not um Oh, now the term has just flown out of my head. Uh, documentary theater. It is not verbatim theater. Um, we do take creative storytelling license. However, we do maintain a lot of, you know, integrity around the material that we've used, around the real lives of real people. Uh, we don't want to misrepresent anyone. However, we, we want to really ask, like, of the source material that we have, what do we not have access to? And how can we really fill in the gaps um, and get to know these people who are very often, most often, women or uh, gender expansive people uh, who don't always get to tell their story in their own words? I mean, for Artemisia, it was unusual that we were able to hear from her directly, even though throughout history, so many others have tried to speak for her. Um, Through her letters. We hear from her through her letters and through the the trial testimony, assuming that all of that was, you know, recorded accurately. In our more recent work, No Pants in Tucson, uh, we, the impetus for that, piece was a whole collection of archaic U.S. state laws that were that fall under the umbrella of being gender oppressive, most often anti-women, things that women can't do. Uh, and we honed in on one law in particular that proliferated around the United States in the late 1800s. And that was a law, a, a city ordinance or a state ordinance, depending, uh, that prohibited people from wearing clothing of the opposite sex. So very often it was about saying that women could not wear pants. You know, it's interesting. I was just watching an old episode of Barney Miller last night. And they arrested a man for being dressed as a woman. And he Mm. asked, what did I do wrong? And they said, "You, it's against the law to walk around in disguise, trying to hide Mm -hmm. your identity. I thought that was very interesting. Yes, it's exactly that. These are anti-masquerading laws they're sometimes referred to. Uh, And while initially they were potentially put in place to stop people, um, very often men dressing as women in order to like rob someplace, um, I guess women being like the unlikely uh, uh, candidate for a robbery. but it's an example of a law that is kind of broad and seems uh, 
maybe fanciful or, or harmless on the face of it. And it's really about how these types of laws are weaponized against certain groups of people. So actually, these kind of laws it, are what the NYPD used um, to to in, in the bar at, at Stonewall. Right. Right. That that initiated or, or helped initiate these riots. Um, and, you know, that's just one example of gender and being um, policed in our country. And of course, we have seen, especially this past year, how interested uh, our lawmakers are in putting policies on the bodies of, of women and people who are non-gender conforming or gender expansive or people who are able to have uh, their children. Uh, and so that was certainly a challenging topic to take on. It's like so big and far reaching. And we definitely approached that with trying to approach that both with humor and also giving a life to a, a fuller picture of some of the many people that we discovered during our research who who were uh, arrested using this law. And again, that's no pants in Tucson. Uh, yes. Is that uh, being staged now? Or are you working on getting on stage? Or we we premiered it in uh, November of 2021. A very precarious time to return yes. to live theater. Somehow we managed to do it right between Delta and Omicron, and we took so many precautions to make sure that our entire team was safe and healthy the entire time. Um, and I'm grateful that came to fruition. And while there was a lot of digital programming that came out of that, including a whole digital storytelling series that, that people can view on our website, we commissioned artists to make short pieces inspired by the research archives for that play. Um, ultimately, we felt like this story needed to be told and shared live and in person. Um, however, we did film that production and then we did take it on tour again uh, uh, this past fall when we toured Artemisia's Intent. We, we, we went on the road, we called it the Radicals Tour uh, and it was both of those shows, three different cities, seven performances, which um, doesn't sound like a big number, but it felt like it um, just to get back out there and and um, get get both of those shows up at the same time. But it was really exciting to bring that to new audiences. And there is a, a live streamed recording of that performance that is available. If, and it's uh, Pay What You Wish um, through our partners at Frigid, which is uh, a theater here in the East Village that hosted us. Um, and so people can watch both of those plays um, the live stream for Artemisia's Intent or No Pants in Tucson. And after this recording of this interview, I will go make sure that the link is right there on the homepage of the website if anyone's curious. And, and your website or Frigid? Uh, um, well, it's on Frigid already. So you could go onto their website 
Um, and you can also find it through theanthropologist.org. Excellent. Excellent. You know, we're just about uh, out of time. Uh, you know, every time you and I speak, Melissa, it goes by so quickly. Again, we're talking with New York City-based theater director, playwright, producer, and arts writer, Melissa Moshito, from her place in New York City. And uh, any closing thoughts for the listeners about, I don't know, what you're doing or what we might do as a, as a community? You can go anywhere you like with it. The arts, what you're hoping for, maybe have a recipe oh, for, my goodness. For, for life, what have you, whatever you want. A recipe for life. Mm. Um, I, you know, I've been thinking a lot about, about the power of getting lost. And I think this is, is connected to this idea of being comfortable with being uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. discomfort, getting lost in a creative process, even like how often do we actually get lost anymore? When I was a student studying in Spain, uh, I didn't have a phone. I didn't have a GPS system in which to track myself. And I have a horrible sense of direction and was constantly lost. And I, in retrospect, am so grateful for that experience because it makes you so much more um, observant and resourceful Mm -hmm. and patient. And uh, I think I know all of those qualities or skills have definitely come into play when in in the art making uh with every project that we start at the anthropologist you know we're starting with a seed a little provocation a piece of a story a question and i we have absolutely very little idea of what the finished product is going to be and it often takes uh, a long time for one of these one of our plays to come to fruition and we kind of we have to get lost in that process together. Um, and personally, I, I have started a writing practice that is outside of the anthropologist, which was intimidating because for so long I've been very devoted to to this company, uh, and just allowing myself to to get lost or to feel lost as a as a writer, as a fiction writer by myself, and uh, which is you know I'm usually working in a rehearsal studio with multiple people kind of writing a script on our feet in the room. Um, But I, I think that when you are lost and then become the seeker, you maintain this level of curiosity and openness to new ideas or new ways of doing things. Uh, And I, I think that would be like my creative challenge for myself uh, and and for other creators out there or just people on the journey of life, like get, letting ourselves get lost a little bit more so that we can rediscover the world. Wonderfully said. Thank you so much, Melissa. It's always a pleasure talking with you, and I look forward to talking with you again in the future. Um, hopefully we get a chance to come out and see something uh, on stage that you're involved in too. I would love that. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye.
And now, from the January 2023 edition of The Sun Magazine, a piece from Reader's Right under the heading Anniversaries by J.K. from Birmingham, Alabama. On April 13, 1743, Thomas Jefferson was born in Shadwell, Virginia. He would later go on to write in the Declaration of Independence, quote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, end quote. He would also write, six years later, quote, I advance it, therefore, as a suspicion only, that the blacks are inferior to the whites in the endowments both of body and mind, end quote. He then referred to Phyllis Wheatley's poetry as, quote, below the dignity of criticism, and gave British writer Ignatius Sancho the backhanded compliment of naming him as the best the black race had to offer, though still at the bottom of white intellect. I, too, was born April 13th, nearly 250 years after Thomas Jefferson. On our shared birthday, I often wonder what he would think of the achievements of black Americans. Here are just a few made on the anniversary of his birth, April 13, 1954. Hank Aaron plays his first game for the Milwaukee Braves. April 13, 1964, Sidney Poitier is the first black actor to win an Oscar for a leading role. April 13, 1997, Tiger Woods is the youngest and first black golfer to win the Masters Tournament. I wonder what Jefferson would make of our current world. I wonder what he would think of young black female writers like me. Would he dismiss us as flukes, anomalies? Would he realize the error of his ways? Would he tell us he meant equal, but not like that? Just like a man 
If you wanna do Reality. Mushroom clouds of ramped-up terminology set so specific to turn one upside down with confusion. It's all as real as it is an illusion. The tapestry of microaggressions build in the aggregate a limiting delusion. A common sense of absolute righteousness through a maze of selfish protrusions. And then she gives him a sweet kiss on the lips to break the spell for a moment, holding a pink-yellow daisy under a three-quarter moon contusion.
Episode 506 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I would like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Melissa Moshito, our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavis, The Sun Magazine, Writer J.K. from Birmingham, Alabama. And these musical artists. Thelonious Monk. Mary Gauthier. Enrico Caruso. Juliana Hatfield. Aretha Franklin. Lee Fields. Bramford Marsalis. And Terrence Blanchard, too. And of course, I would like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and do our best with this time. Take care.